Emily's Pluto Preview, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, this week coming to you with a nasty chest cold. Please accept my apology right up front for the lousy voice you'll have to listen to today. It should be more than balanced by the sweet tones you'll hear from everyone else, beginning with the first of two visits by Emily Lakdawalla. Our senior editor will start us off in a few seconds with an update from Rosetta and Comet 67P Churyumov Gerasimenko, where things are getting even more interesting. Then we'll hear from Bill Nye for the first time since our major light sail coverage. Don't be surprised if the little solar sail comes up again. Back to Emily for her special look ahead at New Horizons' close encounter with Pluto on July 14th. We'll close, as always, with the good Dr. Betts and our What's Up segment, including a new space trivia contest. Please also bear with me as I thank the great folks who joined our little pub gathering in London a couple of weeks ago. My wife and I had a wonderful time sharing a pint with you. It's something I think we'll try to do whenever there's an opportunity. Emily, welcome back. It has been uh, far too long since we've had a chance to talk, and uh, so much is happening. Now, we're going to get to New Horizons, of course, with an extended conversation, your uh, Pluto preview, Pluto-Palooza preview. But uh, before we do that, let's do a, a regular length segment and talk about Rosetta, because there is so much going on out there at the comet. They've been issuing a lot of press releases about scientific publications, which is, of course, the meat that you're waiting for on one of these long-duration missions. You want to wait and see what the scientists come up with. And one of the mysteries about comets has been how they form these collimated jets. You know, the comets are made of icy material. You expect it to sublimate into space and make a coma. And yet comets form these jets. How do they make these focused streams of comet material heading off into space? Well, it looks like Rosetta has seen jets coming out of what looked like collapsed sinkholes on the surface of the comet. And that was the topic of a press release last week. These sinkholes, they're pretty dramatic, and uh, I read that they're letting us look into, well, the the history of the comet, uh, because we can see layers just like we would on Earth. Do I have that right? Yeah, you can. Uh, They think that what's going on is that there's actually a void forming beneath the surface, so the, the hole forms over a long period of time that you can't actually see because it's in the subsurface, but at some point a cavity gets hollowed out and the roof collapses, much like a sinkhole in southern Florida. And when that happens, you suddenly have this exposed, deep cut into the crust of the comet where uh, the material from the inside of the comet is exposed to space for the first time. And so you can both see inside and you have all of this material streaming out of the jets all at the same time. And and it's what gives the comet its dramatic appearance. I don't think that we have spoken since uh, Philae uh, came back to life, reawakened. And of course, it's uh, been asleep again now for a while. Do you have the later news on that? Well, they've changed Rosetta's orbit, and they have to be very careful about Rosetta's orbit because the comet is very active, so they can't get as close to the comet as they would like in order to talk with Philae. But after their orbit adjustments, they actually haven't had another communication session with Philae yet, and it's not really clear what's going on. They're now trying with the concert instrument, which has components on both Philae and Rosetta. It's the radar-sounding instrument that uses a radio link between the lander and the spacecraft. And hopefully concert will give us some news sometime soon that they're actively communicating with the lander. Even if uh, we don't hear from Philae again, still a pretty amazing mission with uh, much more to come uh, as this mission has now been extended right around uh, the sun. 
That's right. And we'll, so we'll be able to see the comet go through its perihelion in August and then sink back into lower levels of activity again as it, as it gets farther from the sun. All right, Emily, we're going to pause for just a few moments so we can hear from uh, Bill Nye, the CEO of the Planetary Society, and then get you back in for an extended conversation about New Horizons. That's Emily Lakdawalla, Senior Editor for the Planetary Society. Now, Bill, I just told the audience that we're going to be talking to Emily, getting her uh, New Horizons Pluto-Palooza preview, but there are some interesting tie-ins here. I'm sure one of the things that's going to come up with Emily, maybe right up front, is uh, this outage that uh, New Horizons is just uh, recovering from now. Well, it means something to me, Matt, because it's just like light sail. (laughs) This is a better fraction of a billion-dollar program than New Horizons spacecraft. And it had to be rebooted remotely on the other side of the solar system in a way very similar, at least to me as an outsider and an engineer with just enough knowledge to be dangerous. It's amazing. I mean, that even at that high, high level with the world's best working on it, they have similar problems. And this gets back to the old saying, space exploration is hard. It's just hard. So a guy who has been doing a lot of the hard work around LightSail, at least, uh, has now departed the program. It's Doug Stetson who did a fantastic job. He will still be a consultant. Something goes wrong. We can call Doug, email Doug. (laughs) But he's handing the reins off to Dave Spencer at Georgia Tech. He was the mission controller, and now he'll be the project manager. These These words all sound a lot alike, but he'll, he'll be running the whole show, and he's very skilled, no problem. But we wish Doug the very best. He did great work for us, and if you're scoring along with us, Doug Stetson was the longtime member and supporter of the Planetary Society who helped us create the current strategic plan. He's just uh, a great guy, excellent engineer, and he's the guy that made light sail sing. He was handed a, an unfinished spacecraft, and he ironed out the bugs, and we got down that picture. It was great. Just a great guy as well. Just a really neat guy. Just a charming guy, yeah. Space brings out the best in us, and it brings out the best people. And it's it's really exciting. I'm glad you brought him up. It's really, really nice. But, man, we got a great team, and next year's light sail flight is going to be – it's just going to be super. Light sail, the first flight, did everything we wanted to do. We found all those subtle problems. Really exciting. Matt, next week – is the big week for New Horizons. We're going to fly by Pluto. I say we are going to fly by Pluto and get these pictures. You know, you still, to this day, Matt, you go to an elementary school, what's your favorite planet? There's a substantial fraction of kids, Pluto! <laughs> and so we're actually going to get actual pictures of Pluto, and next week will be pins and needles time. As uh, It's got a complicated maneuver. I'm sure Emily spoke about it, where it's twisting as it's flying byying. It's very subtle business at this extraordinary speed. It's quite a space ballet. Can't wait for that. Can't wait for the next light sail. And uh, can't wait to talk to you again, Bill. Thanks very much. Thank you, Matt. Carry on. I got to fly. Bill Nye, the planetary guy. He's the CEO of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye. Up next, our senior editor with that special Pluto preview. It was nine and a half years ago that a powerful rocket lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center with what would be our first visitor to the Kuiper Belt, that far away and still very mysterious region populated by hundreds if not thousands of small cold worlds. One of those, a world we've only known about for 85 years, remains one of the most popular bodies in our solar system. Full-fledged planet or not, 
Pluto captured the human imagination as soon as Clyde Tombaugh discovered it, and its grip has never loosened. Now, after a journey covering billions of kilometers that included encounters with other larger worlds, Pluto is about to get its first close-up. I'm watching the countdown clock on the New Horizons website as I record this. It tells me that there is barely a week remaining before closest approach. Planetary Society senior editor Emily Lakdawalla has been among the most enthusiastic fans of the mission since long before its launch. Soon she will join hundreds of media pros and scientists at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, ground zero for the New Horizons team, where all of them will anxiously await word from the spacecraft that it has accomplished its primary goal. I asked her to spend a few minutes preparing us for this encounter. Emily, before we begin with what's ahead, let's talk about what's up with New Horizons right now and the scary stuff that uh, we're still recovering from. Yeah, definitely scary. Over the weekend, actually on the July 4th holiday, New Horizons decided to scare us all by going into safe mode. Safe mode is, is what happens when something happens on a spacecraft that the spacecraft is not quite sure how to handle and stops all science activities and turns to Earth radios for help. So the spacecraft was the whole time communicating with Earth and reporting generally healthy status. But something happened with a command that, that just didn't seem right, and so they talked to Earth. Earth has talked back to the spacecraft, figured out what happened, decided it's not likely to happen again, and is getting the spacecraft ready to resume normal science operations tomorrow. Phew. So that's a, that's a relief. How much science, if any, has been lost because of this outage? Well, they did lose a little bit. You know, after all, New Horizons gets one million kilometers closer to Pluto with every single day. But most of what they lost is just going to be an annoying gap in the kind of approach science that they're doing. It's not um, anything terribly critical to the, the mission's important science goals. That really begins to happen just within a day of the Pluto encounter. So as long as they get everything back um, on schedule on uh, the 7th of July, then everything should be totally fine for the flyby. All right. That's uh, certainly good news. And uh, I'm going to refer our listeners to your report about this, much more detail about New Horizons going into safe mode and hopefully coming out very safely uh, within a few hours as you and I speak. Uh, it's uh, dated July 6th, and it is at planetary.org, as is your piece about what to expect when you're expecting a flyby, planning your July around New Horizons Pluto pictures, and this is updated as well. This goes back to June 24th. Emily, is this uh, all still pretty reliable? Absolutely, because, you know, the, the closest 48 hours or so around the flyby for New Horizons have been planned since 2009. <laughs> their, their goals are so important. The spacecraft can only point in one direction at a time. They have all these trade-offs between the different instruments and the different types of data that they're trying to gather. They have limited space in the data recorders, limited time, limited power. They can't actually run all the instruments at the same time because of, of power require, requirements. So they've planned everything down to the tiniest minute. They have to do twists and turns between pointings. It's all very complicated and was planned out, like I said, in 2009. So I could have written this post years ago. This is a very detailed post, and I was entertained reading the comments to see other journalists thanking you for laying all this out for them, making their jobs a little bit easier. Uh, take us through it. What, what can we expect other than the recovery from safe mode that uh, we've already talked about? Well, I think everybody by now should have seen the images of Pluto and Sharon getting bigger and bigger with time, and that's going to continue to happen, not nearly as fast as anybody probably wants, 
you know, we're seeing details on Pluto, but those details are bright and dark smudges. It's going to be really difficult to say what any of those smudges actually is until the images that are taken within about 12 hours of closest approach. As a matter of fact, New Horizons has to get awfully close to Pluto before Pluto actually fills the camera field of view. It fills the camera field of view for less than 24 hours around closest approach. And so it's only in that period that we're going to get the really spectacular pictures. The other thing that's really important that I'm trying to communicate to the public about this flyby is that because Pluto is so far away, it takes a really long time to get data back. And that means that we get very, very few images back in the hours following the closest approach. In the first week, we're only going to get 14 pictures that were taken around the time of closest approach back from the spacecraft. It's gonna be agonizing to wait for the, the full data set. We won't get that until the uh, mid-November, so people need to be really patient with this mission. And even worse, and it might be somewhat shocking to some people, we're not gonna see anything at the time that uh, New Horizons is actually at its closest to Pluto. Right. As New Horizons gets close to Pluto, it has to choose between looking at Pluto to do science and looking at Earth to return the data. So as you can imagine, in the 24 hours around closest approach, they're going to spend virtually no time turned away from Pluto to talk to Earth. That means that on the day of the flyby, July 14th, there's only going to be this one communication session, what they call the phone home. That phone home will contain no science data at all. It's just a brief burst of telemetry a few hours after the flyby that contains information on the health of the, and status of the spacecraft. That phone home is going to be what will let us know that New Horizons, in fact, survived the flyby. But we won't get any data back from the spacecraft for another 10 hours or so. You will be at APL, the uh, Applied Physics Lab in Maryland, uh, when that uh, message comes in. Hopefully, we'll be spending some of that time talking to you. I'll get to that in a moment. But uh, what will you be up to at APL? Well, I'll be in a big room with a whole bunch of other uh, very excited space media. We'll be separated from the um, place where mission operations is actually happening. Although, like any other deep space mission, the engineers on this mission can do absolutely nothing at the moment of that flyby to, <laughs> to affect the outcome. But they'll all be there monitoring their stations and, and waiting uh, for that signal to tell us that New Horizons is okay. But yeah, it's going to be a, a big party with media. I think they're expecting 400 media at APL the Applied Physics Lab in Laurel, Maryland, in order to cover this event. It's going to be mayhem. That is what I heard from Alan Stern. Uh, and joining you there is going to be Bill Nye, our boss, uh, and we hope to check in with him as well. I should explain what will be happening. On the 14th, the evening of the 14th, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to start a Planetary Radio Live live webcast. And uh, hope that people will uh, tune in, maybe spend time going between us and the official webcast that will be coming from APL, which uh, we will be monitoring as part of our webcast. I'll be joined by Bruce Betts and uh, Jim Bell, president of the Planetary Society and great planetary scientist in his own right, and uh, probably another special guest or two. But we will be checking in by Skype with Emily and uh, probably at least once or twice uh, with Bill and getting those live reports from APL as we wait for that uh, little burst of data telling us that New Horizons has completed the most important part of, uh, of its journey. Emily Lakdawalla has much more to tell us about a close encounter with Pluto. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, hey, Bill Nye here. I'd like to introduce you to Merck Boyan. Hello. He's been making all those fabulous videos, which hundreds of thousands of you have been watching. That's right. We're going to put all the videos in one place, Merck. Is that right? 
Planetary TV. So I can watch them on my television? No. So wait a minute, Planetary TV's not on TV? That's the best thing about it. They're all going to be online. You can watch them anytime you want. Where do I watch Planetary TV then, Merck? Well, you can watch it all at planetary.org slash TV. Random Space Fact! Nothing new about that for you, Planetary Radio fans, right? Wrong! Random Space Fact is now a video series, too. And it's brilliant, isn't it, Matt? I hate to say it, folks, but it really is, and hilarious. See? Matt would never lie to you, would he? I really wouldn't. A new Random Space Fact video is released each Friday at youtube.com slash planetary society. You can subscribe to join our growing community, and you'll never miss a fact. Can I go back to my radio now? Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. You hear Emily Lakdawalla nearly every week on our show. Now and then it makes sense to spend a few extra minutes with the Planetary Society's senior editor. This is one of those times as she prepares us for the imminent close approach to Pluto by the New Horizons probe. Emily warned us before the break that patience will be a worthy and useful virtue as we wait for a treasure trove of images and science data from the encounter. For those images that we will receive some hours after the closest flyby, that that very limited uh, set of images, what do we expect to see? How good will those pictures be of, of Pluto and some of its neighbors? Well, some of the best pictures that we'll get right around the day of closest approach will be probably the, the cover magazine photo of Pluto. <laughs> I think it will remind a lot of people of what it was like to get data back from the Voyagers flying past the outer planet moons. We'll see a, a portrait of, of Pluto's globe, about 600 pixels across, which is not terribly big, but it will be big enough to really get a snapshot of the character of the world. In the immediate aftermath of the flyby, we'll get a similar photo of Sharon. We'll get a similar quality photo of one of the smaller moons, Hydra, but the problem is that the moon is really tiny, and so that photo will only be 15 pixels across. I don't think anybody's going to put that on the cover of a magazine. Hmm. Um, in the days following that, we'll get some much higher resolution photos. So... Pluto will, and Sharon both will way more than fill the frame. We'll be getting detailed shots of features on the surface. Nobody knows what's going to be in those images. They'll be very exciting. They might even be frustrating, enigmatic, difficult to understand. It all depends on what is actually covering the surface of Pluto. And we don't know what that is yet. That's one of the reasons we're exploring it. So I'm, I'll be very excited to see those and see if we can understand them right away or if they're the head scratchers that we're going to have to wait a while for the scientists to figure out. Well, what kind of clues are we getting now? I mean, after all, we've been seeing images of Pluto for weeks now that are better than anything that had ever been seen before. Although they're better than anything that has been seen before, it's it's not such a huge difference that we're learning things that we didn't really know before. So, for instance, one of the things you can easily tell in the images is that Pluto has a mottled surface. It has bright areas and dark areas. And by comparison, Sharon has a much less varied surface. In general, it's darker than Pluto. Um, it also has some darker spots, but the contrast is not as great as on Pluto. All of this we knew already from Hubble data. We're just seeing it in a little bit more detail than we saw before. We're beginning to see some mappable features on the surface of Pluto, but what those features are is really impossible to say. I'm getting a lot of email right now by people telling me, I see craters. Somebody else says, I see mountain chains. Somebody else says, I see life. <laughs> Somebody else says, I see a lake. You know, there's all kinds of interpretations happening. I think it has to do with what your brain wants to map onto the surface of Pluto. You know, some of them are more likely than others. Craters are quite likely. Enormous craters that we could see from this distance are actually not very likely. So we just really have to wait and see the data that New Horizons returns to us once it starts returning data again. 
and uh, we can we can begin to see these features in more detail. But it may well be July 13th before we see Pluto in enough detail to actually understand what we're seeing. Let's go back to your June 24th What to Expect uh, blog entry, which, again, I recommend very highly. I printed it out as my uh, Bible for that evening as we do Planetary Radio Live. You have this great poster that you've done, which obviously it's not images of Pluto, but it does give us an idea of how much detail we can expect to see. Flybys like this have been done before, and the, the main precedent for New Horizons flyby of Pluto is the Voyager flyby of one of the outer planets. The main difference is that Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, are huge by comparison to Pluto. So it's more like we were just flying by Ganymede and Jupiter didn't exist. Images of a Voyager flyby of Ganymede were actually taken at roughly the same rate, at roughly the same resolutions that New Horizons will be taking of Pluto as it approaches and flies past. So I took a bunch of images of Ganymede, uh, which I also chose because it's a fairly contrasty surface, although Pluto has brighter brights and darker darks than Dan- Ganymede does. And I also used uh, another one of, uh, of Saturn's moons as a stand-in for Sharon to kind of get an idea of what these pictures could look like as we pass by. All right, Emily, we're pretty much out of time for this session. It occurs to me that we're going to have one more show that will be up online before the uh, closest flyby, before we do Planetary Radio Live and uh, the world holds its breath. I guess, uh, if possible, it would be great to talk with you from APL, where you will be headed in just a few hours. I'll be delighted to do that. Thanks so much. She is the senior editor for the Planetary Society, our planetary evangelist, and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. That's Emily Lakdawalla. After that extended conversation, what are we going to do next? We're going to go talk to Bruce Betts about what's up in the night sky. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio as I work through my chest cold. But Bruce sounds healthy. I am. I'm, I'm feeling uh, quite well and happy we're doing this remotely. <laughs> yeah, you should be. It has been a while since we've talked because we recorded so many uh, programs before my vacation. I am glad to be back. I do want to mention that uh, we got a nice note from uh, Ian Jackson, a listener who uh, says he hopes I enjoyed the haggis. Did I try black pudding? Well, I only had a couple of teaspoons of haggis, and it was okay. I wasn't brave enough to try the black pudding, but, but thanks for asking, Ian. I'm pretty sure that teaspoons is not uh, the the <laughs> unit you're supposed to use for haggis. Do they do metric now for haggis? Yeah, I think you're supposed to eat liters of it. <laughs> that was not going to happen. All right. Hey, that'd be great. <laughs> do, do tell us now about the night sky, please. Our friends, Venus and Jupiter, that uh, hopefully you've been seeing, they're going to get farther apart very quickly over the next uh, few days and, and couple weeks. So uh, check out the, the dances uh, after they've offended each other. They, they run away. Yeah, well, I guess anthropomorphizing (laughs) planets doesn't really work. That's low in the west in the early evening, and then you can look in the south and find Saturn in the constellation Scorpius, a little ways away from the red star Antares. We move on to this week in space history. Hard to believe it, but it was 2003 this week that Opportunity rover was launched. Still working on Mars. Pretty amazing. 12 years. Absolutely. On to... (laughs) 
Okay, so I let you do that in spite of the fact that we have a special version of Random Space Fact from uh, Michael McLaughlin, a listener out there who decided it would be fun to hear Bruce do Random Space Fact as a Cylon. <laughs> I'm Bruce Betts, a Cylon, and here is the Random Space Fact. So there you go. Now, I know you're only a fan of the first generation uh, Battlestar Galactica, and I, I happen to like the second one. There's a little bit of that in both uh, generations. By your command. <laughs> okay, we can go on to the actual random space fact. Wait, I can do the sound of the red light going back and forth in the silence. Oh, from the please original. do. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's okay. Not bad for a human mouth. <laughs> All right, that was a little lame. Let's go on to the actual random space flight. That was very cool, by the way. Thank you. There are seasons of solar eclipses on Pluto. So Pluto, with its various moons, has a few years with solar eclipses, and then uh, the inclination, the tilt of things, makes it so that for a very long time, there are no more solar eclipses, no more uh, moon passing in front of the sun from Pluto. So the last solar eclipse from its moons occurred in 1990. The next will occur in 2103. Okay, marking my calendar as usual. Road trip. <laughs> All right, on to the trivia contest. Apropos of solar sailing, who said approximately, provide ships or sails adapted to the heavenly breezes, and there will be some who will brave even that void. Who said that, Matt? I was very pleased to see who said that, and I used this as a trivia question when I was uh, at the Aerospace Corporation, their astronomy club, the other day. According to Dan Campbell in Cumming, Georgia, who was uh, chosen by random... Uh, random.org this week, it was Johannes Kepler. Indeed, and, and even more famous dead astronomy dudes, it was Johannes Kepler in a 1608 letter to Galileo. Man, talk about a couple of the greats there. That was a pretty good timing. Dan, congratulations. It's been almost exactly a year since he uh, won the contest. He's going to get a Planetary Radio t-shirt and a 200-point itelescope.net account worth a couple hundred dollars of uh, access to that worldwide network of uh, telescopes. And we're going to do that again uh, this week. Uh, we'll give away another itelescope.net account and a shirt. But first, Jordan Louis in Toronto. This is interesting. He said, did you know that Kepler has an opera named after him, or at least after something he wrote? Die Harmonie de der Welt, Harmony of the World, takes its title from Kepler's Harmonices Mundi, the plot is the story of the search for universal harmony by Kepler. We nice. also, yeah, and, and how is this? This is cosmic. This came from Dave Fisher in uh, Adelaide, down in uh, South Australia. Kepler lived in the town of, wait for it, Sagan in Germany. <laughs> Now, it's now Poland. I looked it up. It's for real. Uh, it's now part of Poland since uh, World War II, uh, but it was actually Sagan, S-A-G-A-N. So uh, there you go. Great things come in threes, apparently. Very cool. On to next trivia, uh, keeping the theme of Pluto for some reason. What was the last year in which Pluto was closer to the sun than Neptune? Pluto in a, a quite elliptical orbit that occasionally takes it within the orbit of Neptune. What was the last year in which Pluto was closer to the sun than Neptune for part of that year? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until July 14th. That's a, a Tuesday, I believe, at 8 a.m. Pacific time to uh, get us the answer and uh, possibly win that shirt 
an itelescope.net account. By the way, it's that evening, the 14th, that we will be doing the live webcast beginning at 5 p.m. Pacific time to mark the uh, close approach of uh, New Horizons to uh, Pluto and its neighbors. And uh, Bruce, I'm glad that you'll be on stage with me. I'm looking forward to it. It's exciting. Yeah. Lots of years of waiting. This is really going to be fun. Yeah, it has been a long, long wait and uh, quite a climax. Uh, the details for that, well, we've got an event page up at planetary.org and uh, a link at the show page that you can reach from planetary.org slash radio. That's it. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about your favorite metal. Thank you, and good night. Is kryptonite a metal? Metal! Anyway, if it is, that's my favorite. He's Bruce Betts, also a favorite. He uh, joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its clear-throated members. Danielle Gunn is our associate producer. Josh Doyle created the theme you're hearing. I'm Matt Kaplan, wishing you clear skies and a great encounter with Pluto. Pluto.